Extras for Podcast is brought to you by the fine folks at Cage Club. So for all of your comics, movies, music, games, and more, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Comics are back, and that means we are too. This is X. I'm Nico. I'm Kyle. I'm Maddie. And I'm Jonah, and we hope you survive this experience. Unlike those Russian soldiers who had their minds wiped. Boj moi! Gosh, it's been a long time since we had an X-Comic, and I'm so happy to be back, and it's so exciting because it's not just a new era for comics having come back, but it's a new era for the X-Men, especially with the big news of Ten of Swords coming up. But before we can get to that, we have some big news of our own. As always, it is a pleasure welcoming back Kyle and Jonah, the guys who kicked off this show with me. Coming over from the 80s Mutant Mania feed is none other than Maddie. Hey, buddy. Great to be here. Great to be back in general. Really looking forward to breaking down some news and jumping into a little Marauders with the gang. And action! I don't know how all of these crossovers are going to work kind of stacked on top of each other. As excited as I am to get to Ten of Swords, we have a little bit of X-Men Empire to go first which is going to finish up rather quickly instead of releasing it over the course of several months. Marvel is uh, packing it in really tightly so that we can get to Ten of Swords. Now, I'm so excited about this episode. Ten of Swords is coming upon us pretty quickly. We have the prelude, which is going to be an Excalibur 12 and X-Men 12. Then the series is going to run through 22 massive issues. While this isn't quite the order, there will be three one-shots, Ten of Swords Creation, Stasis, and Destruction. And the titles themselves are going to be Excalibur 12 through 15, X-Men 12 through 15, X-Factor 4, Wolverine 6 and 7, X-Force 13 and 14, Marauders 13 through 15, Hellions 5 through 6, New Mutants 13, and Cable 5, 6, and Now I Have Discalculate. You think you could repeat that? No. Okay. No, no, I don't. This is a tremendous event for which personally I know nothing about, as I believe Nico and Jonah at least know. I jumped back in in the Hox Pox docs of it all. So even as far as Empire is concerned, I'm sure I could use a little bit of a refresher's course on what exactly is going on and what exactly has come. Well, I have one prediction, and it's that this should have been named Swords of Ten, so that the errors could have been Hox Pox Dock Socks, but I guess the socks of it all is lost on Zaw. Well, I think that they might be going for, like, the tarot card type of name. Now, Kyle, one of the things that I know that held you back from jumping back into X-Men with such great force initially was the overwhelmingness of it all your first major event is 24 interconnected issues is that like a turnoff for you in any way or are you like look i'm gonna read these all anyway so fucking fine in this case i had already been planning on reading all of these series so yeah it's kind of fine for me they're already in my pull list so i don't really have a problem with it right now Jonah, I know that things like overwhelmingly large narratives don't throw you off. You're a let me absorb it all, let me digest it at great volume. So this is one of the places where I've always been kind of titchy about the X-Men. How are you feeling coming into your own as an X-Fan dealing with things like the 24-issue crossover? 
currently within the Hoxpox docs, not so many socks, there have been a couple of references to tarot cards, specifically with Rasputin, Cardinal, and the Tower cards way back in one of the Powers of Ten issues. The Ten of Swords tarot card, when it's in the upright position, talks about ruin, being betrayed, being a victim, lots and lots of bad things. But the reverse version of that card talks about overcoming disaster and overcoming this inevitable fate that you were succumbed to. What that could possibly mean? I have no idea, but I'm going to be fascinated. This is going to be a very large event and going to be one of the larger events I've ever been privy to live. I am a person that's very easy to roll with a punch, especially with comics. You just tell me what happened and I'm good to go. But I guess I'm more concerned because I like the separate titles right now. So having all those kind of have to be taking a sideline to this more main narrative is going to be interesting. Well, let's try to piece together the web of what's come before to help give Maddie a little context on what we're looking at. There have been a few hints about the future of the X-Men, like the foreshadow variants for House and Powers of X. These came out toward the end of the run of Hoxpox. One featured Omega Red coming out of a Krakoan gateway, which came to pass ultimately in Wolverine number one. And the other sees Birdo sitting on a throne. Uh, we can assume it's a Shi'ar throne. I mean, maybe he's just sitting on a really pointy chair in front of some Shi'arzian people, but whatever. And they're just all tying their shoes. Oh, because well, that's where the socks went. So we also had an image of Ensabadner from our dissection of history of the Marvel Universe, or as it's come to be known better, Histmu. And we found out that back in Histmu times, Ensabodner, who would become to be known as Apocalypse, had these bitchin'-ass swords and chopped up some broods. Which brings us to the future. In Marvel 1000, we saw Apocalypse talk about the reflection of his first horseman, and then to cap things off at the end of Histmu, there were predictions about the future. They were the interstellar reign of the half-breed, which we now know to be the plot of Empire, the rise of the outlaw generation, which, oh god, as Kyle put it in the green room, outlaw wound up being the prelude to the prelude to the event. So, <laughs> the king in black, is that Sebastian Shaw? Is Stephen King coming? in a gunslinger cosplay. I'm into all of it. And the wedding of Tony Stark and Emma Frost, for which I am bonkers excited to know if anything is going to come out of. Or going That's... to. I can't, I, I can't imagine personally a worse couple in the Marvel Universe. Just two, and granted, they, they each have the redeeming qualities, and I'm about to really broad stroke Emma here, but didn't like how broad stroke Emma sounded. She loved it. You have meaty hands, That's and okay. she's really into there's some fine hands to just rampant narcissists and one who can control the other's mind that's a little dangerous well it's kind of like amanda woodward and dr peter burns from melrose place my husband and i recently jumped into a complete rewatch of melrose place so that's going to dominate the references for a hot mom so kyle apocalypse was one of the things that had you the most nervous about hoxpox yes you were very Oh boy, Apoc, oh no. And I was like, I'm with you. And now he's like sitting at the center of this massive conspiracy to tend the swords. How are you feeling about Apocalypse's place in the Marvel Universe 
inching dangerously closer to a central figure. I am incredibly uncomfortable right now. It's really cool having an ex-villain take this kind of large-scale effect on the Marvel Universe, but I'm really worried about all of the characters that we've come to love just because of how this could affect all of them. If Apocalypse or A is being set up as the central figure uh, coming up, and that's been seeded throughout X-Men, X-Men 2 saw Arako and Krakoa being reunited. Of course, Apocalypse or A was such a central figure in the first volume of Excalibur as a primary villain. So he sort of has his hands a little bit everywhere. He's on Quiet Council. So it's funny to see a book that has made so sure coming out of House of X, Powers of X, not to make anyone... A central figure. It's a strong choice to halfway through our second volume start setting up the one who really should be the one to which we are most concerned with. Yeah, I don't know how between Apocalypse and Sinister, Sinister is getting more of the concern. Okay, I mean, I guess I get it. Apocalypse just kind of wants everyone to die and Sinister seems to- I mean, like, how is Sinister not every- okay, Speaking of Arako and Krakoa and Orkara, Okara, Okara, so good for yourself. We had our first references to it back in Powers of Ten, number four. We were Okara, the one land, Cypher said to Xavier. Ancient before that word existed, but not yet old in the way that they were old. The twilight sword of the enemy toward the world asunder, and what was one became two, Arako and Krakoa. And from the chasm between them, from whatever wicked place they came, the enemy poured into this world. Later on in that same issue, we got a sinister secret in the form of the Red Diamond Bar Sinister Gossip Column. And it said, For years, the fittest of all mutant had routinely surrounded himself with a particular numbered entourage. These hangers-on stick around for a while until they are eventually replaced with newer, more exciting members. What most people don't know is if the original members returned, these pretenders would be dropped so fast their heads would spin. No, yeah, give me some, give me some free looking horseman. One of them looks kind of like a, like, a, like a Bast Anubis kind of person. I'm so in. Give me freaky old horsemen. Burn it down. Do you think that any of these horsemen have anything to do with the summoners from X-Men? Do we do we know anything about the summoners? In X2, Arako and Krakoa were reunited and we met, well, the summoners. The summoners connect Arako and the land beyond the wild borders of Otherworld. Another connection between Apocalypse, Excalibur, and X-Men through Otherworld. There are currently two 250 summoner miners able to summon a single host or minor demon. They also can't drive after 9 p.m. and can't legally buy cigarettes. There are currently only eight summoner adepts who can summon a small horde of minor demons or one major elemental. Sounds like somebody I'd want to go up against in Final Fantasy, a reasonable mid-sized boss. And finally, there is just one high summoner who can summon a horde of elementals and up to three major demons. So you're afraid your Shiva and your give me a third. Bahamut, would you would you go with Bah? Oh no, he's not. Elemental. He's not elemental. Ixion? Ixion's fine. Who Titan? would you go with, Kyle? Zap Titan. Titan. Ooh, Titan. Earth damage. Yeah. Ooh. All acceptable. What about gravity? Uh, who's the gravity one from eight, Kyle? Why am I? Diablos. Diablos. <laughs> Sandra Bullock. We have one more piece of really what-in-the-fuckery information that I gotta know more about. In X-Force number three, a reference that I feel like nobody really picked up on. 
The Cerebro Sword page says, When Xavier once again walked among his people, some could not help but cheer and cry with gladness. Others embraced him. Others shook his hand. Others bowed or knelt on one knee. Forge grabbed him by the shoulders and dragged him close and offered a big hearty kiss on the mouth, startling a laugh out of the professor. That's hot. When he and Magneto finally had a private moment, his old friend did not smile or clap him on the back. Instead, he stared long and hard at Charles before offering a gift. The shattered remains of Cerebro, which had been shaped into a sword. I suggest you keep this close, he said. Xavier took it by the hilt and promised to do as Magneto advised. In his living quarters, he hung the Cerebro sword on the wall above his bed, as a totem and as a reminder. And I have to assume, as an insurance hazard, like if that falls and hits him in the head, I doubt very much that his policy covers acts of falling computer swords. I mean, they'd probably still resurrect him anyway. Oh, I forgot the X-Men can't die. I yeah. would still, I, I might, if I if I died by way of falling computer sword over my bed, I might resurrect myself with a scar, like as a reminder, just like a little reminder. Like if I, if I full blown slash my face, like I'm not going to go extreme, but like, hey, dummy. Yeah, well, like get like, like a scar that looks like the scene yeah. on your back, just like your whole back. Jonah, Jonah, you have a tattoo guy for this, right? I do, I do, and he loves doing nerdy comic stuff. He did that gorgeous Nightcrawler. Yes, he did, yes, he did. Oh, I haven't seen your Nightcrawler. I haven't either. Which is, again, awful. Yeah, that that was a little... I haven't seen your Nightcrawler. I haven't seen your Nightcrawler tattoo. Let's go with that one. My, uh, my my Nightcrawler is available if you ask nicely and you are kind of cute. No, I will send you a picture of it. It's on Instagram. (laughs) Do we think that Ten of Swords will see explicitly Ten Swords? Because we can can rattle off a few off the top of the dome right now. We, in addition to the Cerebro Sword and Swords Apocalypse, uh, Cable Number 1 introduced the Blade of the Space Knight, as well as the first promo image for Ten of Swords shows Wolverine with the Murasama Katana, Magic with her Soul Sword, Betsy with the Captain Britain Psychic Sword, and again, Cable with the Blade of the Space Knight. That's, if I'm not mistaken, six men, Charles, and A. And then I'm going to throw in that Brian is likely to have Brian's Lionheart sword. And I'm pretty sure Rachel Gray is shown with Corvus's Phoenix Blade. So... We're just racking up the swords. That's eight. A has two swords, so if we really want to get nitpicked. This is kind of, once again, like Final Fantasy, where it's not so much ten of swords, but it's like ten and one of swords. Ten dash one. (laughs) Ten dash one. (laughs) It can be no less than 10. It can be no less than 10. More is fine. It's 10 plus. So there's uh, one of the little carrots signifying it's an exponent. And then it's S minus one plus two. And that's the number of swords where S represents the number of brain cells I have lost since this conversation began. I want to remind you guys that a couple of things are a little bit different going into this before we get some final thoughts on 10 of swords. What's missing? The usual round of miniseries, the X-Men love having little minis, while true, there's going to be three one-shots, Creation, Destruction, and Stasis. It's not really the same thing as this constant side mini, which I'm glad they're not doing, don't get me wrong. X-Factor and the New Mutants will only factor in once each, while Cable kicking off the shindig in his first issue will only have two issues. 
So since the X-Men and Excalibur will each be housing four and Marauders housing three, it's very likely that the event is going to still be running through books while it's over in others. What are my assumptions? I think we're going to get a big mystical war. I'm pretty excited about it. I think the swords make sense considering there's daemons and monsters and beasties to stab. Something is the X-Men usually don't have hordes to stab, but they have hordes to stab. I think there'll be a lot of stabbing. If we're to assume that war is coming and that we are in a in a time of war, as it was specifically referred to in this past week's issue of Excalibur, Jamie is specifically seeking to wage war. So there's at least one war currently a brewing. Where do we think that this leaves the glaring omission of any news of Children of the Atom? If I could posit one prediction that I have, it's that, as I believe was covered in an earlier episode, we are to assume that the Children of the Atom are going to be a first generation of Chimera, meant to mimic the five shown. I would say that this might make sense in a time of war, and might not need any earlier introduction, because it's going off of a mold and a model that works, specifically creating Chimeras from our staple X-Men, as whether that's specifically frontline soldiers, or that's the crew being trained to stay behind and protect the land. In either case, that's the news that I've been looking most forward to and have received nada. Firstly, I want to say that there is another war brewing in space, which is Empire, in which we know that Teddy Hulkling is kind of, you know, banding his people together. He's about to go a cookie lion for control of the record company. I really, I really swung for the Hatfields and McCoys of the entire Civil War, didn't I? Empires going on, but no, Jamie Braddock's <laughs> one issue, Other World War. And what I think the Children of the Atom are, are first generation, but not necessarily chimeras, but more so creations through the resurrection process on Krakoa. But we know that they can control the DNA, and I think what they're doing is first generation of mutants who only know about Krakoa and are only basically designed to protect Krakoa. Although I would love chimeras because I want Rasputin and Cardinal back and they won't give them to me. That's beside the point. Well, as X-Men number six showed us the tower being brought back into play, I don't think it's entirely out of the question that Cardinal and Rasputin could be getting their time in the sun soon. But to say that the the Children of the Atom might be first generation Krakoan could tie into a thought that I've been having this whole time, which is one of the Krakoan laws being make more mutants. I'm glad that we have Shogo and I'm glad that we have Maggie Braddock. They're adorable. It would be great to have an island full of mutant babies. But what's better than mutant babies is using the powers of Ava Bell of the Five and Resurrection to age them to a desirable place. There's no reason that Children of the Atom, in that sense, couldn't be the first round of mutants born on the island aged to perfection, which is something that we've seen mimicked in the most recent issue of Marauders, with Tempo having aged in a span of a week, a whiskey, of course not a not a sentient organic being, but a whiskey to 50 years in one week. We know that Ava Bell can age a body over the course of several hours. I believe they said they can do 30 some odd on a good day in perfect synchronization. Smush and get the results real quick. Smush and get the results real quick. Act <laughs> now and we'll throw in a second full-grown mutant adult baby for free. Kyle, <laughs> Kyle, tell me. Kyle, I need to know what you think about the mutant smush. Oh, geez. That was kind of what I was leaning towards, that this was there all part of the uh, Make More Mutants initiative and they're being aged up in order to increase the population. I like the 
the psyche, something that Nico's husband has been talking about lately in our metafiction discussions is the consequence of the, the Pavensi children of Chronicles Narnia. Any character who has aged an undeterminable amount of time, an indeterminable amount of time, and then snapping back to their place and that all of that experience and all of that time logged, but nothing to show for it. It must be fascinating to see that verse. Yes. With Empire coming up, and obviously a lot of the Marvel titles are going to be leading into it, does anybody have any ideas who Allegiance Wiccan will be with? Because he has the boyfriend that he loves so very much and who had to leave him, but he's also a mutant. But, like, his mom is an outcast. So, like, where are we going? I'm going to give a really honest response here. I think the plans that govern Wiccan, Hulkling, Hawkeye in the form of Kate Bishop, etc., I believe the plans there are a little bit larger than necessarily our comic-based purview. I think the Young Avengers are poised for a theatrical debut or a Disney Plus run. I know that that's something that Kyle and I have been discussing at length, that there are so many opportunities for them to segue in the Young Avengers. I wonder if Empire had a chance to realign these characters in a way that will best suit them to appearances in Ant-Man 3, in Captain Marvel 2, etc. Potentially a Young Avengers property, which my, my biggest assumption as far as MCU predictions, really quickly, has been that Wiccan will be introduced as we've seen hinted in the WandaVision first trailer with the two Luke Cribs, so we'll be getting Wiccan in speed, presumably. I think it would make most sense right now with the way that Scarlet Witch is being poised in the comics and the way that Wiccan is being poised for a theatrical debut like Nico had said. I think it would make the most sense then for Wiccan to align himself with the human population over the mute population by far. And part of that assumption stems from my reading of the third volume of Young Avengers, which saw the introduction of Wiccan as the Demiurge, which is something that exists in such a such a macro sense that it overrides his identity that has already overshadowed any allegiance to, to a mutant identity, to a human identity, I think it makes most sense that he go where where the chips are highest. And I think that's with an Avengers property. Back to Wondagore with Bova. <laughs> Today, we have Marauders number 10, Leave None to Tell the Tale, written by Jerry Dugan, artist Stefano Caselli, color artist Edgar Delgado, a letterer VCs Corey Pettit, and designed by uh, Tom Muller. Let me just say that this was a absolute amazing issue. The uh, I've been waiting for the Marauders team to finally do something about what happened to Kate and their activities in this was just absolutely insane and amazing and I loved it so much. You know, I, I think that there's a lot to unpack about the way that the issue opens off a title card and the way that that's mirrored again in the close, which is the email correspondence or or rather letter correspondence between Kate Pride and Nightcrawler. I personally believe coming out of his his most recent revelation in the, the pages of X-Men, I think that Nightcrawler is going to become something of the religious oligarch of the island. And I believe that the road to that is going to be paved in part by his championing 
inspiring the resurrection of Kitty Pride. Do I know how? Absolutely not. Am I grasping at straws? 100% entirely. If you're trying to pitch that Kurt is going to be the first nun in the Church of Kitty, sign me the fuck up, get me to a cloister, get me to a nunnery, because the Church of Kitty sounds fucking Kurt-tastic. There is such an importance to that, not that this is entirely a spectrum of organized religion being covered here, but I think it's important that the godlihood of Nightcrawler and the practicing of, of Kate Pride's Judaism meeting in the middle for a Krakoan-based, mutant-based religion. Again, we could stand for much more representation, and I do hope that whatever the Church of Krakoa is does not overshadow the affiliations of mutants who may already have assigned a religion of their own. But I do think that it's important to have these two characters, these two very notable characters from classic X-Men meeting in the middle as far as their, their religious similarities or differences. It's no secret that a lot of things can make me cry, especially when they're really touchy and they're really beautiful and it's the characters I love. So I may have sobbed twice during this entire time I was reading this issue because the Kurt letters from Kate to Kurt and Kurt I just Kate. cried at that this morning. Reading it again, Kurt's, Kurt's response mail <sighs> when he was saying, I'm, I'm so sorry that you've set sail and did not return. And I just welled up. <sighs> anyway, from heart-touching <sighs> moments to this issue... Um, in terms of the larger overall narrative of Marauders, which seems to be right now, what the fuck is so special about Kate, I feel like they're dragging their feet a little bit when it comes to answers for that, and I need a little bit of, like, jogging as opposed to walking now when it comes to what's going on as to why Kate cannot be revived and resurrected. Um, this has been, like, a known issue that there's been problems with Kate on Krakoa, which... I now have a theory that it's Doug. <laughs> That's beside the point. I would absolutely not be surprised by that, actually, that Doug is keeping Kitty for himself somehow. There are so many nods to the classic X-Men era, whether it's Storm being like your power weapon killing power weapon forge from the uncanny 180s which is where we are right now ultimately culminating in life death by chris claremont and barry windsor smith i think there is something to be said for your theory jonah there is a lot hearkening back to the distant past but if i may the highlight of this issue is twofold number one bishop having a conversation with christian frost about a spaceship that can be driven by piano and Bishop looking the finest he's ever fucking looked in the history of comic books oh is God. like obviously <laughs> number one. But number two is the Emma Frost titty attack. Emma Frost titty attack is like the greatest moment of my life. This actually has cultural significance. So in ancient Japan, there are female ninjas who use this technique called kunoichi, which is using your feminine body, using your features like your boobs, your bo your legs, all these different things in wearing revealing clothing to distract your opponents because they would too busy be looking at you in a seductive way, and you can use that as a form of attack. So Emma Frost is now a uh, pioneer of the modern-day kunoichi, and that's all I just have to say about that. I like pioneer of modern day over appropriating. Strong, sexually empowered women for life. Forever. We stand a strong woman here. 
Bishop got that post-quarantine haircut on day one. And looking oh so fucking hot. I can't. I can't. He, he, so was, he was all home workouts. Oh my and I'm God, not just talking so chest and shoulders. There was core There's every day. Th- thigh. There were, he did calf day every day. <laughs> leg raises while... No, he wouldn't use the microwave. I was going to say leg raises every time he microwaved food. Toe raises. He's toe raising raises. everything up on a toe. Well, there, there's some toe raising. Um, does anyone know where the mercury came from? Um, the big old UFO. So, as far as I know, this is unique to this story and Christian being like, LOL, ask her about it. Aren't I funny? Why am I making him a little bit German? Yeah, that's weird. Um, <laughs> Bienvenue. Fishop, I play piano. Ha ha. Now he's just Jennifer Coolidge. Do you want a cookie? Bishop, yes, I play the piano and it flies the spaceship very far good, yes, ha! Are we to assume then this is the means of extraction from Marauders number eight when Iceman went on his his absolute rampage and then suddenly disappeared when he froze the, the gentleman and, and broke off his trigger finger and then suddenly just peaced out in a blink? I would absolutely believe it. Kyle, you're like the Iceman, Come you're in. the Ice Frost shipper. I know this is right. like a couple you want to see get real cold hot because ice frost i'm ashamed so Ah. (laughs) so christian frost has only had these mutant abilities for like two years you know he's a mutant yay he's on krakoa everybody's real happy about it but i feel like this is the first time he's taking like spotlight how do you feel seeing him gain agency and ultimately his own narrative so frequently the boyfriend gay figure is sidelined. How do you feel seeing him rise through the pages? I am actually really enjoying it. Seeing him appear when he came back was in the Iceman solo. And that was when we realized that he was just being completely drugged up by his father. And seeing him become such a powerful or such a useful person to Emma and the Hellfire Company, it's it's really nice being able to see him move beyond that trauma that he lived with for so long. I think one of the things that benefits Christian is that he understands a utilitarian nature. He needs to be useful to be useful and is willing to prove his value the same way his sister was. Emma didn't come into the X-Men and was like, bitches, give me a school. She was like, I'm going to pay my dues. And I feel like Christian's slow rise through the ranks is well-deserved. And it kind of goes along with this book's feelings of inclusion. There's those moments where Emma is like, whether a person is gay, disabled, or trans, you're going to basically cut off your own feet to run a marathon for them. Jonah, and I feel like that is the result of your generation of readers being real pushy about being the diversity squad. I need Christian, Iceman, Richter, Karma, and one other queer ex-woman, and I just need their version of the Super view. disagreeable. Oh, oh my god, absolutely. She would be like... She would... Oh no, I, I really need it to be Callisto because she'd be like the Joy Behar, and she would just constantly be stabbing things. Okay, Callisto and Ooh. Bling and Karma. We'll have six. We'll, we'll do three and three, so it's even. But can it be when Callisto had the tentacle arms instead of when she had regular arms? Because for a few years, Mask reshaped Callisto's arms into hideous green tentacles, and it was very tentacle porn. Speaking of Mask, it's good to know that he's now just contented himself to play God. Exactly. Yes. Mask's happy ending. I feel like okay. So number one, this guy's human. He just happens to have a photographic memory. It is the same thing as if Doug Ramsey was. 
accidentally exploited and betrayed by his polyglot former co-worker. It's a little contrived <laughs> and a little ridiculous. Oh, 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 Steve now knows Krakoan. Oh, guys, I'm so sorry. Steve learned Krakoan. Uh, we worked together for six months, like about a year and a half ago. And yeah, now Steve knows Krakoan. Uh, what? Y- yeah, but hey, Mask got a golf boyfriend. Golf, older golf boyfriend. And you know what? They make a handsome couple. And it looks like even Daniels or Dan Molina, as he'd prefer to be called now. Amazing how that stuck out to me. He got a, he got a little shape up, a little haircut. He was looking crisp. There's like Morlocks everywhere in this book. So many in Arizona. Yeah, I have to wonder. Kyle, Jonah, how do you guys feel about the more or less lock situation? I want more of them. Like, give me more, give me more healer. Show me more Callisto. Show me more mass just playing golf. Give me a whole issue of mass playing golf. I would actually just be a lot of that. No, you know what? I'm positive I read that in Miracle Man. It's not great. I Uh, hope that's the next silent giant size. Just mask playing 18 holes of golf. To quote somebody who I look up to, people used to just go to parties and they would just start draping themselves and playing on a piano and I would find that shit annoying. I'm flashing to Zuby Zoo from Mad Men. (laughs) Zuby Zoo. (laughs) (laughs) I like that the... Morlocks have a place where they can go and kind of live carefree without having to really deal with the rest of the mutant population because they they still don't really feel like they're connected to them. So it's it's nice that they have a place to go and they don't have to live in the sewers anymore. And thank God for that because, I mean, Arizona's a lot of things, but it's better than a sewer. Well, because part of my complex relationship with this equation is the Morlocks represent a moral quandary for me in the current state of the X-Books that causes a a bit of concern. Now, I recognize and understand that there is no good version of a real-world metaphor for this situation, but the truth of the matter is the Morlock's existence is a result and machination of Mr. Sinister's genetic tampering and the X-Men have given Mr. Sinister... Why aren't more people upset about Sinister? Like, okay... Oh, but then I guess earlier I was saying too many people are upset about I can't win. Well, here's the thing. I can't win with me. I can't win. I think everybody is afraid of Sinister, but they're a little bit focusing on Mr. A right now as opposed to Sinister because Mr. Sinister has been very quiet and very agreeable and seemingly very cooperative. We knew as the reader from House and Powers that Sinister was going to be responsible for the creation of the Chimeras and then the betrayal of, of providing the Chimeras to the Man-Machine War. Do you think it's possible that despite the danger that Sinister poses to mutant kind, that Moira and in turn Eric and Charles knew the possibility that Sinister would be responsible for the creation of chimeras and what a valuable contribution to mutant society that would be? I think Moira specifically would understand that just from her previous lives and seeing the effects of what his uh, work with the Chimeras has done. So yeah, I think that she would have known and she would have probably told Xavier about it. Moira and Nyan in specific showed a lot of her interactions with the Chimeras obviously previously mentioned. Uh, Rasputin and Cardinal as well as uh, Percival and Silabel who justice for them because they got literally nothing. I agree with you, Kyle, that Moira would be the one who would have to convince Charles and Eric that Sinister, whether or not they're going in the direction of Chimeras or needed or not, 
it's going to be useful and is a case of an emergency or is a case of we need extra firepower and what way than just combining the most powerful mutants together. It is always so exciting when things change for the X-Men. If for no other reason, the X-Men are about change. They're about mutation, evolution, and dynamic shift. But the thing that makes the X-Men unchanging is the uncompromising core of family that lies at the heart of the title. It's a found family, and it's a family that changes. And as always, the characters in the roster change. For my sake, if we're talking about characters that are populating not just the X-Men, but specifically the Hoxpox Doc era. I mean, for me, it's a no-brainer. It's Gene all the way. It's Genie, Genie, Gene. I've enjoyed what I've gotten of Logan, but he hasn't really popped off the page the way Gene has for me. It feels like a return to form on the heels of X-Men Red, which was so good, and I'm eager to see more of my lovely lady in Red. You know, I would like to know what is going on with Rachel. So it's funny that you said Jean, because Rachel seems to be a little bit of a plot device. As far as Dawn of X is concerned, she conveniently guided Rogue out of her coma in Excalibur number 6. She appeared most recently in Excalibur number 10, which will be covered next week. And I'd kind of like to know if there's really going to be any further manifestation of, you know, is is she going to become a big player or is she going to fade to the background? From two ladies in red to the lady in black, or the young girl in black, Magic has been front and center for a lot of the promotion material for Sword of X. She's, as far as I'm aware, the first X-man, X-woman to use a sword. Uh, So I am super excited to see what her role is, how she's going to be dominating the pages, and how much more I'm going to love her. And also... She's on the cover of Free Comic Book Day for X-Men number one, so. That's a heavy spotlight. That's a big deal. That's an exciting deal. Um, it's a, it's especially a good deal because it's free. Exactly. And Free Comic Book Day is, is being spread out over, what, nine weeks now? Yeah, it's Free Comic Book Summer, which is genuinely exciting. Let's get people back in shops as long as it's safe. They've got their masks on and nobody's exceeding uh, appropriate limits. I think I'm excited about Iceman. I, I... I keep going back and forth between a couple characters, but I'm going with Iceman because he's just had so many entertaining moments since Hoxpox that really build up his character recently. And I'm really enjoying how much emotion they're putting into his character in regards to uh, Kitty and the rest of the Marauders. I would say in addition to Rachel, you know, because Rachel is, what's Rachel doing? But the whole cast of Marauders... To be honest, I'm really curious to see where Marauders goes and not to jump the gun, but next week I am going to be really excited to talk about how excited I am to see where Excalibur will be going. Well, they're giving us a hint as to where some of these titles will be heading. Excalibur is going to see a True Believers $1 reprint featuring several of the eight-page stories that we've covered here on X's for Podcast over on the Captain Britain feed in the pages of Marvel Superheroes 
380 to 383 to highlight Saturnine. This is going to be called Saturnine Number 1 True Believers. They're also doing a handful of True Believers titles for the New Mutants. Cypher, who received several mentions, is going to get Cypher Number 1, which is going to reprint New Mutants 13. Ileana's kind of getting two. She's getting Soul Sword Number 1, which reprints Uncanny 171, as well as Magic Number 1, reprinting, well, Magic Number 1. And then... We're going to top things out with some Hellions-related True Believers number ones. These are a little bit more all over the place. Havoc number one providing Havoc's earliest story. Scalp Hunter number one giving Uncanny 211 from his debut in The Mutant Massacre. Empath number one highlighting New Mutant 16, which will be coming up on Exus for Podcast literally next week. Annie, Annie and Norfin Maker. Well, that's my new favorite show. Little Norfin Ant, Nanny, Annie, Nanny, Ant. X-Factor 35. Don't, that's bad though. I love you. Uh, Wheezy Simonson, but Orphan Maker and Nanny are bad. Wild <laughs> Child number one, which we just covered in Alpha Flight number 11, as well as the Marvel Comics Presents backup story featuring Wild Child. So I guess because that one's just the A story from Alpha Flight and it's missing the B story, they wanted to make it hit the normal page count. But that is actually two stories. So that's a lot for a dollar. I would maybe pick that one up if you're interested in knowing a little bit more about Wild Child. And then things top off with Mr. Sinister's I get he's still not really Mr. Sinister yet here, but an issue he is very responsible for with Uncanny 221. With Marauders being so heavily featured during Ten of Swords, is it possible that maybe they find a way to resurrect Kate and her sword as one of the swords? Uh, uh. Well, Kyle, now that you've pitched us 11 of swords, I can't wait to get back to this show. Excuse me, we only had eight counted at that point. Oh, and we decided that it was 10 exponent S minus Yeah, something two? like that. Kyle, where in God's name can everybody find you? <laughs> you can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. Maddie, where can everybody find you? Um, nowhere in particular, but I'm working on it as we speak. Hey, Jonah, where can everybody find you? You can find me unbuttoning my blouse to reveal some certain body appendages that I'm going to be using to distract people because it's easier to mind control everybody when they have the same thought. On Twitter and Instagram, actually, you probably could see what I'd be doing like that on Twitter and Instagram at Peak Jonah. Nico, where can everybody find you? As always, you guys can find me all over this amazing network on Mondays and Thursdays here on X's for Podcast on our two feeds. This is X Mondays, where we cover the most modern X books, as well as X's for Podcast Throwback Thursdays, where we take a look at the past of the X-Men and how it shaped the modern narrative. Don't forget to check out HTML on Tuesdays, where we're currently covering the Star Wars Force universe. And if I may, there might be some fantastic material coming forth at some point for us to take a break from star wars it might involve every four movie including the roger corman so keep your eyes peeled for what might be the worst html project ever the anti-rap battle if you will and until we come back you guys can find me on instagram at nico action and n guys it is as always a blast to come and share this hour with you please remember that the world is a constantly shifting and evolving place stay current stay aware make sure your voice is part of the change and until we come back ladies and gentlemen keep those mutant lights lit bright bye bye, bye.